Well, I should probably start off by congratulating all of our winners at our locations this morning. If I were um, in the room with you this morning, after all that excitement, I would probably want to ask the winner one question. And the question I would ask is this, what did you just win? Like, I don't mean what prize did you just get for being the last one with cards. I mean, what was the game that we were just playing that you ended up being declared the winner of? Because if you think back to the instructions that you were given, um, we never told you what game we were going to play. We just said, compare cards and whichever one is better wins. We actually never even told you which cards would be better, how to define better. Because in different games, different cards are better. In some games, the two is high. In some games, ace is high. In some games, ace is low. In some games, ace is low and high. In some games, the, jo- the jack is high. In some games, the joker is high. We never even, we didn't tell you what game you were playing. We didn't tell you how the cards were to be assessed in terms of better. Maybe what we meant was the card in better condition or the card from the better deck or the card that was financially worth more because it has more ink on it so it's been more invested. But we, here's what just happened in all of our rooms is that on a, based on a set of unspoken assumptions, largely unspoken, we made up a bunch of rules by which we arbitrarily assigned value to the different cards, and based on the arbitrary assignment of value, we declared winners and losers. That's what we just did. And it's kind of funny to realize that we, as a group, invented a game without being given the instructions on how to play. It's less funny to realize that this is exactly the same thing that we do in every single community in which we live. Based on a set of unspoken assumptions... We make up rules and arbitrarily assign value to each other and then declare winners and losers. And the whole thing goes from sad to funny to sad when you realize that we even do it in the church. That's what we want to look at this morning as we turn to Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 23. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can follow along. The verses will also be on the screen. But we've been in this series now. This is the fourth week where we've been following along. What's been happening, if you're newer to the conversation, is that Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing a letter to these churches in an area called Galatia. Because some folks had come into these churches asking a very fundamental question. Who gets to belong to God's family? And their answer, based on the Old Testament story of Abraham, which we looked at two weeks ago, their answer was, if you want to genuinely belong to God's family, then you have to belong to the family of Abraham. And you have to belong to the family of Abraham by getting circumcised, by following specific Jewish religious rules. That putting your faith in Jesus is important, but now if you really want to be a part of the family of God, you have to start obeying the religious 
rules. And Paul is writing this letter to these churches to say, absolutely not. That is absolutely not the case. That in fact, the only reason anybody belongs is because of the life we receive from God is a, the gift of grace that you cannot earn or deserve. And we get it not by adhering to religious rules or being religious rule keepers or by proving how religious we are in any way. We simply receive it by faith in Christ. Not faith in ourselves, not faith in our ability to perform to God's religious satisfaction, but faith in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, what Jesus has already done. The life of God and the belonging in the family are by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's Paul's point. And Paul says to them in this series, he says, you already know this. Because you have had, every one of you, have had significant experiences with God through the Holy Spirit. And those experiences that you had with God, every single one of them, none of them was because you were being such a good religious rule keeper. They all came because you had put your faith in Jesus. You just received them by faith. Paul says you know this because the scriptures teach it. That it's not religious rule keeping that God wanted from Abraham or anybody else. He simply wanted our faith. He wanted us to believe in our minds with Christ. To trust in our hearts. uh, To trust Christ. And to live with faithfulness with our hands and our feet. To live a life of self-sacrificing love like Jesus did on the cross. That's the only thing God has ever wanted from us. Which led to the question that Jeff Martin so capably addressed last week, which is this. If all God ever wanted was faith, then why did God give the law? Why are there so many rules in the Bible? And the answer that Jeff gave last week is summarized in Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 23, where it says this. Before the coming of this faith, before the coming of Jesus... We were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. Paul says, the reason God gave the law, the law was to act as a detention center. Um, Roman prisons in the first century were not generally used to punish offenders. Punishments took other forms. Roman prisons were, were created to temporarily hold people until their trial date. There was no bail system. So you had to detain everybody until their trial date. And so the role that a detention center, a prison would play in the Roman judicial system was that it would keep somebody confined so that they wouldn't break any more laws, so that they wouldn't run away from the law, so that they wouldn't hurt themselves or hurt other people while they were waiting for the moment of resolution when their trial would come. Paul says that's what the Jewish religious law was. Or he says, to change metaphors, in verse 24, he says, so the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now, that this faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. Paul says, think of it this way. Jeff used this metaphor last week. The law is like a nanny. The law, the rules of the Bible, were like a, they were like a trusted guardian whose responsibility it was to to guide the child through life 
to teach the child appropriate behaviors, to discipline inappropriate behaviors, to to protect the child and to keep them safe until they could grow up into maturity when they could do all of those things for themselves and they don't need a nanny anymore. Not that we can, you know, throw the whole thing away because Jesus has come now. My kids had a nanny when they were younger, a woman named Rachel, whom we love deeply as a family, who still has an ongoing influence in the lives of my kids. But it's different now because they don't need her to be a nanny anymore. And this is what Paul says. Paul says the, the law, the rules in the Bible were kind of like, a, they were kind of like a nanny. They were meant to guide They were meant to protect, to nudge in the right direction, to keep us safe, to keep us from wandering off, to keep us from hurting ourselves and each other until Jesus came. In both metaphors, what matters to Paul is that it was a temporary measure until the final resolution could come, at which point you didn't need a detention center, you didn't need nanny, and you don't need the law anymore. Paul's point is now that Jesus has come, we all belong on one basis only, and that is by faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, that's what he goes on to say as we move into the point that he's making this morning. He says, so, verse 26, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. He says it's, it's in Christ Jesus that we belong to the family of God. Remember, in the Galatian church, there were people who were coming along and saying, it's in as much as you belong to the family of Abraham by circumcision. That's how you belong to God's people. And Paul says, no, it's not belonging to Abraham's family by circumcision. It's in as much as you belong to Jesus Christ by faith. That's the only way that anybody belongs to the family of God. In fact, he's literally, the the point of the sentence is to go out of the way to say, that is how everybody comes to belong to God's family. That is the only way to come to belong to God's family. He he says in the verse, he says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Literally in in the Greek language in which the letter was written, the very first word in the sentence is the word all. He says, all therefore are children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. It's the all that Paul wants to emphasize. To say there is actually no other way for a person to come into the family of God. There's, there's, no, there's no other thing that somebody has to do. There's nothing else that is required. The only possible way, the basis on which everybody comes into the family of God, the only door to enter through is by faith in Jesus Christ, which means Everybody enters exactly the same way. Well, how do we know when somebody has put their faith in Christ Jesus? Paul tells us in verse 27. He says, for because all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Paul says, The only way to belong to the family of God is by putting your faith in Christ Jesus and everybody who puts their faith in Christ Jesus gets baptized. 
Now, Paul's not making baptism a new religious rule that you have to follow. You can belong to Christ without being baptized. And there are stories of people in the Bible. Uh, Jesus died next to a thief who put his faith in Jesus with his dying breath, and he was never baptized. He belonged to Christ without being baptized. It's not a rule that has to be followed. But at the same time, in the New Testament of the Bible, and to someone like Paul, a phrase like unbaptized Christian would have been complete nonsense. Paul wouldn't have even known how to understand what an unbaptized Christian is because to Paul, you belong to Christ when you put your faith in Christ and the way you evidence that you have put your faith in Christ is by getting baptized. That's just what you do. It's not a rule to follow. It's just what you do. When you fall in love with somebody and you want to commit the rest of your life to living um, in a loving, committed, monogamous relationship with them, you get married. That's not a rule. It's just what you do. Or it's, at least hopefully or biblically, what you do. Paul says that everybody, the only way to belong to the family of God is by putting your faith in Christ, which is always manifested through the act of baptism. Now the sad reality is that though Paul may not know what unbaptized Christian means, some of us do. Uh, because we live in that state that would have been nonsensical to a person like Paul. We've put our faith in Christ. We, we believe in Christ with our minds and we trust him with our hearts and we're committed to faithfully living out the self-sacrificing love of Jesus on the cross through the power of the Holy Spirit. We have done all the things that it, that it means to put your faith in Jesus. We've just never represented that in baptism. And if that's you this morning, we've already heard today that our hope is to celebrate at Easter, the baptisms of as many people who have found new life in Jesus as possible. And so if you're one of these people who are living in this oxymoronic state of being an unbaptized Christian, something the Bible knows nothing about, consider being a part of that at Easter. Because Paul says the only way to belong it's by putting your faith in Christ, which gets represented in baptism because he says those who've been baptized have clothed themselves with Christ. What does he mean? Well, he's still thinking about baptism. You see, in the, in the early days of the church, when a person got baptized, they would get baptized uh, really alone and in private and naked. There would be one deacon or pastor there to baptize them of the same gender, and they would be naked. They would show up for their baptism, usually Easter Sunday morning, show up for their baptism in the regular street clothes, which sort of represented the person they'd been and the life that they'd been living. And they would show up and they would turn to the West and they would renounce the devil and all of his works. They would say, I don't want to be a part of, I, I don't want to be a person like I was before. I just want to love God with all my heart and I want to love people as much as I love myself. Then they would turn to the East and they would profess their faith in Christ by reciting the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, um, creator of heaven and earth. I believe Jesus is only son and so on. 
And then they would remove all of their clothes. Symbolically leaving behind the life that they lived. And they would enter the water as naked as the day they were born. Because they were entering the water to represent the fact that they were being reborn. And as they emerged from the water, they would be clothed in a brand new white robe. To, to symbolize the fact that they had become a brand new person who had been clothed with Jesus. That they were now fully and wholly identified with Jesus. Their identity was in their relationship with Jesus Christ and nothing else. That's sort of clothing for us still has the power to represent what it is that we've become. Right? A wedding dress or a wedding tuxedo represents that I am becoming or I have become a spouse. Um, some of you in the next couple months are going to don a cap and a gown and be hooded with the clothing that represents that you have become a graduate with a bachelor of whatever, a master of whatever, or you become a doctor of whatever. The clothing represents who you have become. And when these people would get out of the baptism waters, they'd be clothed in this white robe to say, you have become fully identified with Jesus Christ. You are fully connected to the life of Jesus and your entire identity you have now received from him. That is the most important reality about who you've become. Which means that all the other parts of our identity begin to fade into the background. And so Paul says in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul says once you have been joined to Christ. Once you have been fused into um, the family of God, once you belong through your faith in Jesus and your identity is completely rooted in Jesus Christ, all the other identity markers that we use to identify ourselves and each other, all of them fade into insignificance by comparison. Now, the list that he chooses, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, these aren't arbitrary ways that we demographically distinguish ourselves from each other. These were the three most significant ways that a person in Galatia in the ancient world would have established their standing and value in society by their ethnicity, race, and cultural identity, Jew or Gentile, by their socioeconomic standing, slave or free, and by their sexuality or their gender, in this case, male and female, Paul says. Those were the fundamental markers by which people identified themselves and each other and established their worth and value in society because all of these pairs were not of equal value. The most in these three categories, the most valuable person you could be was a Gentile free male. The least valuable person you could be was a 
a Jewish slave woman. There's always hierarchy in every one of these pairs to the point where each one would despise the other. The Gentiles hated the Jews because they were this weird little sect that seemed to be the exception to every rule. And in response, the Jews hated the Gentiles for being so religiously inept. Free people hated the slaves because they didn't even consider them to be human beings. And slaves hated free people because of how they got treated. Men hated women because of the intense patriarchy of the society and mistreated them at every turn. Women hated the men because of the way they were mistreated. There was always a hierarchy and there was always animosity towards people who were not like you. Ethnically, racially, culturally, socioeconomically, sexually, by gender. And of course, we can just keep adding to the list. Able-bodied and disabled. Cisgendered, transgendered. Straight, gay. Conservative, liberal. Married, single. Young, old, citizen, immigrant, highly educated, less educated. The the ways that we label and judge and ultimately choose to exclude each other from community based on how we tick the boxes of our human identity are almost limitless. And Paul says, Because the only way to belong to the family of God is through faith in Christ represented by baptism. And that everybody comes in through the same door. He says at the most fundamental and important level, we are all the same. And all of the ways that we mark our differences, all of the ways that we label and judge and exclude ourselves and each other because we fail to tick the same boxes of human identity as because you fail to tick the same boxes that I do. All the ways that we play these games, Paul says, all of them are inappropriate and inconsistent with living a life in Jesus Christ. That the only thing, the only identity that matters is that you are a part of the family of God through your faith in Christ that you represented by baptism, period. That is where your most fundamental identity comes from. Now, please, do not mishear what I'm saying. Paul is not saying that all those other parts of your identity don't matter. Or that... um, That what he wants is that, what he envisions is that the church is this kind of homogenized community of uniformity where everyone talks the same and acts the same and dresses the same and thinks the same and interprets the Bible the same and believes the same and that everything has to be the same. Spirituality is the same and the morality is the same. And Paul's not saying that the goal in the body of Christ is sameness, in the church is sameness. Neither is he saying that we ought to live with some sort of phony sense of colorblindness. You, you know what I mean? That people will say, oh, when it comes to race and ethnicity, I don't see color. Well, first of all, yeah, you do. 
And second of all, the goal is not to treat everybody the same as though all of our identities are the same. When your goal is to treat everybody the same, here's what happens. We live in a culture where systemically those hierarchies and those value grids have been imposed and absorbed by us in ways that we don't even recognize. We live in a culture infused with white supremacy so that we by default, treat white people as though they are more valuable than people of color. We live in a culture that is infused by what you could call oligarchy, which is when the rich people rule, so that we just, by default, assume and behave as though rich people matter more than poor people. We live in a culture that is infused with patriarchy, such that we live and believe as though men matter more than women. We live in a culture infused, infused by ableism. So we believe that able people matter and are worth more than disabled people. And on and on and go. That young are worth more than old. That citizens are worth more than immigrants. That um, married people are worth more than single people. And on and on and on and on it goes. And when you say, I just try and treat everybody the same, all you end up doing is perpetuating the patterns of systemic injustice the way we've learned to internalize them, period. No, what Paul is saying is that the community of faith is supposed to be the one place where diversity is desirable and celebrated. Where all of the ways that you tick the human boxes of your culture and gender and ethnicity and, and sexual orientation and, and socioeconomic status and education, all the ways you tick the human boxes, all the things that make you uniquely you, those are the things that make you a unique gift to the entire community. In fact, Paul in somewhere else, he says that the church is kind of like a body. There's only one body. Every human being only gets one body. But that body's composed of a gazillion different parts. And every part is different and unique. And every part, by virtue of their uniqueness, has something unique to offer. They are a unique gift to all the rest. No, no, diversity is not something to be whitewashed or pushed aside or ignored. Diversity is something to be acknowledged, recognized, desired, and celebrated because I can only learn to see and love and be like Jesus differently if I'm in community with people who see and love and are like Jesus differently than me because they're different than me. That's the only way to grow is in community with people who are different than you. So please, Paul is not saying it doesn't matter your race or ethnicity or cultural background. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. It doesn't matter your sexuality, your orientation, your gender status, your marital status, your immigration status, your age, whatever. All the ways you check the boxes of what it means to be identified as a human being, they all matter and they're all a gift. What Paul is saying is that more fundamental than all of those ways that were different is the one way that we're the same. This is what he says at the end. You are all one in Christ Jesus, period. For as different as we all are in ways that we recognize and desire and celebrate, the one thing that unites us and joins us is that in Christ, in the family of God, we are all exactly the same because we entered through exactly the same door, which is to put our faith in Christ alone and to represent that in baptism. 
It's the leveling ground that unites us together, not only with God through Christ, but that unites us together with each other. So that Paul can say, everyone in the community genuinely experiences the unity that comes from acknowledging that we all stand on exactly the same ground before God and that none of those other things in any way determine or shape our relationship with God. 15 years ago, our St. Catherine's location had just opened up the homeless shelter, which meant that for the first time in my life, I was being exposed in a firsthand ongoing way to walking with people who were without a house, people who struggled with mental illness, people who battled addictions. I remember chatting one day with a guy named Guy who was homeless, who was a drug addict, who was a porn addict, who was unemployed. And everything about um, Guy people looking in from the outside would have in every way assigned to my humanity a higher value than Guy. Guy was by all of the categories worth less and was being treated as though he were worthless. And I remember saying to Guy one day, you know, the more I talk to addicts, Guy, I said, it seems to me that there's a lot of pain there. I didn't know anything about addiction. But Guy looked me in the eye and he said, he said, make no mistake. You and I are exactly the same except for two things. The first is an experience of pain beyond how you know how to cope. And the second is one bad decision about how you're going to cope with the pain. What Guy was saying to me in that moment was that if you strip away all of the labels, all of the categories, all of the ways that we label and judge and exclude each other because we're different than each other, because we judge the other person to be worth less than us. You strip all of that away, Guy says, we are fundamentally the same in our shared humanity. And if I had had my pastoral wits about me in that moment, I would have looked at Guy and said, Guy, we are also fundamentally the same in the way that we have both stood before God and put our faith in Jesus Christ, believing and trusting and living faithfully a life of self-sacrificing love. Guy, you and I are exactly the same because we've come through exactly the same door and we've entered into exactly the same relationship with God and with everyone else in the community because we've done exactly the same thing. We've put our faith in Jesus Christ and nothing else. Because for Paul, when he says that that's how all people belong, for him, all means all, no matter what. Let's pray.
Father, we repent of all of the ways that we, the labels that we invent to slap on each other so that we can look down our noses at each other and exclude each other from community. We're ingenious at inventing ways to discriminate against each other. Father, there are some here who have lived on the discriminated end. And I pray, God, that today you would breathe into their spirit the hope that this community could maybe one day be different because of you. And there are those of us who've been on the discriminating end. And would you breathe into our spirits the repentance and the hope that one day we could be different so that instead of labeling and judging and excluding, we would learn to embrace each other as equals in the sight of your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we put all of our faith to make this real and in whose name we pray, amen.